1: With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details.
2: Before I start today's episode, I have an important announcement to make. When I started this show almost a year ago, I set myself the task of covering every single queen of medieval England, from the Conquest to the end of the Wars of the Roses. At the time, it seemed like a daunting task, and I had no idea if anyone would even be interested. A year on, I'm now on my 26th episode, not to mention the three supplementals, and you may have noticed that we're coming up rapidly on the end of the Middle Ages. Well, I've been thinking for several months now about what I would do once I finally got to Elizabeth of York, generally accepted to be medieval England's last queen, and now I have come to a decision. It seems a shame to stop the show while the audience is still growing, and there are still queens left to cover. Therefore, I've decided to carry on. Yep, we are going to plough into the Tudors and the Stuarts. Yay! Now, this does fill me with a certain amount of trepidation, as I'll be entering a period where there is far more material to read and a lot more romanticism, but I think I'm up to the challenge. Now, of course, the name of the show does give us a point at which I can go no further. The final Queen Consort of England. Who was? Anyone know? If you say Queen Elizabeth II, then you clearly have not been paying attention, as she is a Queen Regnant, not a Queen Consort. If you say Queen Elizabeth Bowes-Lyon, the late mother of Britain's current Queen then you'd be closer, but there's that crucial word, Britain. Remember, Britain and England are not one and the same thing, any more than California and the United States are one and the same. The final Queen Consort of England was... actually... did you get it? Lots of points to those of you who did, because it is Mary of Modena, wife of King James II of England. After her, there are only Queen Regnants before we get to the British Queens after the Act of Union in 1707. So how long will it take me to cover the rest of the Queens of England? Well, I honestly don't know. There are ten Queens in that span, six of whom, of course, are wives to Henry VIII, but I think there are quite a few opportunities for supplementals, not to mention that some of these Queens will take far more than one episode to cover. I'm looking at you, Catherine of Aragon. Therefore, I reckon that there is at least six months' worth of material in there. After that? Well, I'm not thinking that far ahead. I think there's plenty enough to do in the meantime. Because of this, I will be re-recording at some point the introduction episode to the series to reflect this change, but don't worry, I won't be George Lucasing the whole back catalogue. As much as I would love to clear up the rather poor sound quality and delivery of my earlier shows, if I were to go down that rabbit hole, I'd never record another episode, I'd just spend all my time polishing my existing ones. I would also like to thank the latest donor to the show, listener Andrea from the great state of Minnesota in the US. She is an avid Elizabeth Woodville fan, making her Yorkist Rebel Scum, but I think I can more than forgive her for that, given her generous donation to the show. Thanks, Andrea. Finally, I'd like to remind you all about the best ways to keep in touch with the show. There's my website Queensofenglandpodcast.com, the Facebook page, Queens of England Podcast, and the Twitter page at Queenspodcast. Also, don't forget to leave a review on iTunes. It's the best way to grow this community and get new listeners to join us. For every episode. Hello, and welcome to the Queens of England podcast. Episode 26, Catherine of France, the mother of the Tudors. Before we continue from where we left off last time, I'd like to say something quickly about naming conventions, because I do love a good tangent on historiography. You may have noticed that every queen that I have yet mentioned has been such-and-such a name of such-and-such a place. Now, these are not often the names that they would have been known by in the queen's own time. Instead, they are often given these names by historians so as to distinguish them from the other queens of the same Christian name. There are loads of Eleanors, loads of Isabellas, not to mention all the Matildas. The usual convention is to name them after the kingdom or duchy or county from whence they came. Hence Eleanor, the Duchess of Aquitaine, is Eleanor of Aquitaine. Isabella, daughter of the King of France, is called Isabella of France, and so on. However, this is not always the case. For example, as we're going to see, especially in the case of the Queens of English birth coming up, surnames in the modern sense are becoming more of a thing. Thus, for example, Henry VIII's fifth wife, despite being the daughter of the Duke of Norfolk, is not called Catherine of Norfolk, she is called Catherine Howard. This is because sometimes the names of the ducal or royal house become a sort of medieval surname. Now, traditionally, our current Queen Catherine is known as Catherine of Valois. This is because she was from the Valois branch of the French royal dynasty. If you Google her, that's probably what most people will call her, and it's what most books will refer to her as since they tend to go with a zeitgeist's name. However, Isabella of France, the wife of Edward II, is not called Isabella of Capet, and Charles I's wife is not called Henrietta Maria of Bourbon, but of France as well. Some books even go more ridiculous and call Catherine's sister Isabella of France, but Catherine is of Valois, despite them being full-blooded sisters. A bit of consistency, please! Therefore, I have rather obstinately called her Catherine of France to match up with her sister, because that's what I think she should be called. But, if you want to go with everyone else and think of her as Catherine of Valois, that's okay too. So, to recap the end of the last show, Henry V of England and Charles VI of France, along with his Burgundian allies slash minders, had concluded the Treaty of Troyes, but saw the capitulation of the House of Valois to the House of Lancaster. Henry was the heir to the French throne and was promised the hand in marriage of Charles's daughter to cement the arrangement. Henry and Catherine were officially married on the 2nd of June at the Church of Saint-Jean at Troyes, but, as will become customary, Catherine was not to spend much time with her new husband, as he had to rush after the front to continue the war against the Dauphin, a war that was getting ever more brutal by the day. On the 1st of September, Henry, Catherine, the King and Queen of France, Burgundy, and a host of their allies entered Paris together one can see the difference in stature between the English and French kings by the quality of the Christmas parties that they threw. For Charles, quote, a small number of old servants and persons of low degree showed up, whereas for Henry and Catherine, quote, it is scarcely possible to tell in detail of the state they kept that day, the feasts and ceremony and luxury of their court. Henry and Catherine were living at large. After passing away the religious holiday, Henry and Catherine crossed the Channel, and for the first time, the new Queen of England visited her new homeland, where they were met with great rejoicing. The reason for the great outpouring of celebration is, I think, best expressed by the historian Lisa Hilton. Anne And if Bohemia had been poor, Isabel de Valois a child, Joanna of Navarre an expensive widow, but Catherine was a beautiful blonde virgin who brought the Kingdom of France as a dowry. Catherine was a shot of glamour to a kingdom that had a range of queens that were, quite frankly, a little bland. On the journey from Dover through Canterbury and into London, they were greeted by tens of thousands of people, with 30,000 in London alone. On 24th of February 1421, the 19-year-old Catherine was crowned Queen of England. Here it is in the Brew Chronicle. Quote, "'Queen Catherine came from the Tower to her coronation at Westminster,' The mayor and the seven aldermen and all the commons brought the queen through the city, and there was done and shown to her all the everything that might be done for her comfort and pleasure, and every street was hanged richly with rich cloth of gold and silk and of velvet, the best that might be gotten, and so the people brought her through the city to Westminster, to the king's palace. And then, the next day, Lady Catherine the Queen was crowned in the Abbey of Westminster with all the great and worthy bishops of this land, with all the solemnity and rites that might be done and ordained, and the feast held in the palace was open to all people, strangers and others that would come. The royal couple then went on a little tour of the kingdom, where Henry was sure to show off his new wife, the woman who had brought him and England the crown of France. As I have said a thousand times, Queens were required to do two basic things. One, provide some material advantage from their family connections, be it money, titles, lands, or preferably all three, and two, produce heirs. Catherine had already done the first better than any other queen in English history, and on this tour she fulfilled the second part by conceiving a child, who on the 6th of December 1421 turned out to be a boy, who was named Henry because, say it with me everyone, Medieval parents had no imagination. Henry was not there at the birth; indeed, as long ago as June of that year he had returned to France to continue fighting against the Dauphin. While in England he had left the fighting to his brother, the Duke of Bedford, but Henry loved war far more than anything else, and so at the earliest opportunity he returned to the war, leaving his new young wife in England. At Easter they were reunited in France, and they spent a little time together in Paris. But before long, Henry was off at the front again, but this time he would not come back. He contracted dysentery, and on the 31st of August 1422, he died. Catherine may or may not have been present on his deathbed, the sources disagree, and historians since have debated if this was because of some irrevocable break between the two, but I think this is a modern reading of a medieval marriage. Don't let Shakespeare and overly romantic sources convince you that Henry and Catherine was a love match. It was not. It was a marriage of convenience, and so you can't expect the grieved soon-to-be-widow to rush across a war zone to be with her dying husband. I think it's fair to say, though, that Henry didn't have the greatest respect for his wife as a political figure. Now, this may have had something to do with the fact that she spent around half of their marriage pregnant with their son, but she was afforded no particular role in the governance of the kingdom, despite Henry being absent from England, and he did not even let her manage her own estates. Governed officials simply paid her the amount due by the treaties as sort of middlemen. In his will, Henry gave Catherine no pronounced position, giving her neither the regency of England or France nor formal custody of their son. The sources, though, do agree that the Queen was distraught at the death of her husband, and it's unlikely that this was forced. They may not have lived the romantic ideal of the perfect marriage, but theirs was a partnership in its infancy. Together, They were supposed to be king and queen of an Anglo-French empire, stretching from Hadrian's Wall to the Mediterranean, probably the greatest European empire since Charlemagne. Their son, the new king, was only 16 months old, and the Dauphin of France were still at large and far from beaten. Henry's body was taken to Rouen, and from there Catherine led the mourning party back to England. Every town across northern France and England is said to have been convulsed by grief. While this is probably a little overstated in the occupied French territories, I don't think that this is the case for England. Henry was the greatest conqueror that England had ever had, the greatest warrior king since Richard the Lionheart. Back then, no one cared about his faults or debts these conquests incurred. They only saw him as a hero, a historical rock star, and like all the great rock stars, he died before his star could wane. Although she was given no official power in the regency of her son, Catherine was still important as a symbol. Although she had produced the heir that England needed, she was far more useful as the embodiment of a submissive French crown. As a French woman in a male-dominated England, she was used as a symbol of the great empire that England had carved out of the once mighty France. Her submission to first her husband and then to the regency government of her son was symbolic of the submission of her homeland. It was quite rare in English history for queens to run regency governments, and the omens of history were not good for Catherine. Queen Isabella had run the regency government of her son Edward III for a few years after she had overthrown her own husband, Edward II, but the circumstances of that overthrow, her relationship with Mortimer, and the way she had clung on to power after her son had come of age hardly recommended her as an example. Then, There was Catherine's own mother, Isabella of Bavaria, who had run for a time the regency government of her husband, Charles VI, but her reputation as an oversexed and weak ruler hardly helped Catherine's cause. Not that there necessarily was a cause. Whether Catherine rankled with the lack of power given to her is unknown, but there is no evidence in the historical record to suggest that she really cared. She seemed content to play the role of the loving mother and trophy of England. There is also the argument of linguistic isolation, but I'll get to that a little bit later. In terms of her personal finances, she was given a healthy dowry to live on, though not as much had been promised to her in the Treaty of Troyes, but compared to how Joanna Ravard had been treated after the death of her husband, she could hardly complain. The new King of England, Henry VI, holds the record of the youngest person ever to ascend to the English throne. While he grew up, his kingdom was ruled by his uncles, the Duke of Gloucester ruled as Lord Protector in England and the Duke of Bedford did the same in France. Catherine's role, set out in her husband's will, was to live in the court of her son and aid in his upbringing. And that is exactly what she did in the early years of Henry's reign. She appointed the people that attended to her son, including Dame Alice Butler, who served as his nurse and governess, and George Atherton, who was his confessor, though what an infant needed a confessor for, I have no idea. These were all the so-called Queen's Men, and helped to maintain her influence as the Dowager Queen. Since, of course, Henry had no wife, and Joanna of Navarre had long since retired, Catherine held an unrivaled position of chief woman at court. She also seems to have been a fairly involved parent by medieval standards. Here is a story from the London Chronicle from November 1423, when Henry was in the terrible twos. The King and the Queen his mother removed from Windsor towards the Parliament in London, which began at Westminster on the 21st day of October. Before and on the aforesaid 13th day of November, at night, the King and Queen were lodged at Staines, and upon the morrow, which was Sunday, the King was borne towards his mother's chair, and he shrieked and cried and sprang, and would not be carried further. Wherefore, he was borne again into the inn, and there abode on Sunday all day, and on Monday he was borne to the chair, and then he was glad and happy in spirits. Sometimes the medieval world can seem very distant from ours, but there is a nice simple story of a toddler having a temper tantrum, and his mother just throwing her hands up in the air and sending him to his room. Marvellous. On the 6th of November 1429, the eight-year-old Henry was officially crowned at Westminster Abbey, with his mother by his side, and it is possible that she also accompanied him to France after that for his French coronation. But soon after that, she fell out of favour. Why? Well, it was her romantic life that caught up with her. The very reason why she had been chosen to marry the English king to begin with was now coming back to bite her. With the matter of succession being a little perilous, given the extreme youth of the king, it would not do for such a high-born and well-connected woman to marry a powerful nobleman. To do so would instantly create a challenger to the throne, and that would not do at all. The only previous queen of England to remarry within the kingdom was Adeliza of Louvain, and that was in the 12th century. She was not that high-born, and not to mention that England was in the middle of a civil war when no one much cared about what she was doing. Adeliza was also not a queen mother, and not enormously well-connected. Her situation was nothing like Catherine's. Again, the reputation of her mother as an oversexed immoral hussy didn't help Catherine, though it must be said that she didn't help herself most other queens in her position either retired from court or did not seek to remarry after the death of their husbands, Catherine chose to chart a different path, and rumours began to flourish that she was in a relationship with Edmund Beaufort, the Earl of Somerset, and cousin of Henry V. Now, whether they had a full-on sexual affair or whether they just courted it is unclear, but some chronicles are in no doubt, with one saying that Catherine wasn't able to, quote, "'Curb fully her carnal urges.'" Edmund certainly came under the category of dangerously highborn royally connected suitor and moves were quickly made to prevent the match. The Duke of Gloucester, the man in charge in England, quickly passed a law that prevented...
1: Normally
0: being a little extra can be a bit much. down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. how to get 30, 30, bet you get 30, bet you get 20, 20, 20, bet you get 20, 20, bet you get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
2: Now queens from remarrying without the assent of the king's council? Evidently after this, the affair fizzled out. It seems that it was after this crisis that Catherine was edged out of her son's court, with Henry moving from the female-dominated care of his mother to the more male-dominated care of Gloucester. Catherine marked this by entering into one of the most interesting and important sexual relationships in medieval history. Owen Tudor was a Welsh squire a member of the Queen's household. He was handsome and charming by all accounts, and it seems that the young Dowager Queen fell hard for him. He was also a nobody. Their love story has been heavily romanticised, with a huge variety of different stories flying about, this of course being the origin story of the Tudor dynasty. The Tudor kings went to great lengths to give Owen and his predecessors some noble lineage, but basically they were the minorist of nobility, and Welsh at that, which given the laws of the time made them a kind of tier 2 citizen. To give you a brief potted history of the Tudors up to that point, they claimed descendants from the former Welsh kingdom of Deheubarth, but that was really just wishful thinking. They were just a gentry-based family in Anglesey, that island off the coast of North Wales most famous for its Druids. They first make the historical headlines by being one of the principal backers of the rebellion of Owen Glendar, a Welsh revolt against the English rule that lasted from 1400 to 1415. They were right at the heart of the rebellion until 1406, where they abandoned the sinking ship and were pardoned by Henry IV. Owen Tudor was born in 1400 to mared Tudor and Margaret fetch Dafford. Peace with England came at just the right time for the boy, for he was admitted into the royal household as a page for the future Henry V. He appears later as a member of the retinue of the royal steward, and after Henry V died, he joined the Queen's household. The most famous and romanticized of the stories of Owen and Catherine's first meeting is at a ball. Owen was apparently dancing, and while attempting to execute a tricky pirouette, he literally fell into Catherine's lap. There is also a rather raunchier version that has Owen Tudor stripping off to go swimming. Clearly impressed by his naked physique, Catherine disguised herself as a maid and arranged a shall we say rendezvous? Not recognizing the Queen, they engaged in some rather hot sex. And during this, he kissed her on the cheek rather aggressively, leaving a love-bite. Later on at dinner, he sees the same mark on the face of the dowager queen and realized who it was that he had left his mark on. The most boring version, and therefore the most likely to be true, is that Owen was a member of her household, tasked with organizing her property portfolio, and while working close together, they developed feelings for each other. However it happened, the two were definitely in a sexual relationship in the early years of the 1430s at the latest. Now it is possible that Catherine purposefully chose a commoner to marry rather than a noble, as it got around the law preventing dowager queens from remarrying nobles, but that seems unlikely to me, as if that was her only concern, then she would surely have chosen an Englishman rather than a Welshman. The aftermath of a Welsh revolt during the reign of Richard II meant that Henry IV had made a series of draconian decrees that included forbidding Welshmen from carrying arms, living in certain places, owning land in England, and generally not given the same rights and privileges afforded to the English. These were extremely racist laws, and so any marriage between the Welshman and the Dowager Queen would be fiercely resisted. That said, there does seem to be a true love story here, as there was no material advantage for Catherine in marrying such a low-born man, Indeed, doing so caused her nothing but trouble in public. Some historians have rather crassly made Catherine sound like a randy young girl who couldn't keep her knickers on, but it seems to me that she just yearned for the companionship and security of marriage, and she fell in love with this nice Welsh boy. She was a foreigner in a strange land that was suspicious of her, and perhaps she found common ground with Owen, who was much in the same position. I have no reason to doubt that this was a love match, and so I've just decided to go with it. Now some historians have made the claim that their relationship was kept as complete secret until Catherine's death, but I find that very hard to believe, as the Dowager Queen having a bunch of kids when appearing to be unmarried would have attracted considerable attention and comment. There is no doubt though that members of her household knew about it, and they were not impressed with one of the noblest born queens of England in history cavorting around with some upstart Welshman they are reported to have said that Catherine had, quote, lowered herself by paying any attention to a person who, although possessing some personal accomplishments and advantages, had no princely nor even gentle alliances, but belonged to a barbarous clan of savages reckoned inferior to the lowest English yeoman. There is also doubt amongst historians about whether they were ever officially married, as there is no record of it happening, But, again, I think it highly unlikely that Dowager Queen would have exposed herself to the kind of comment that having a bunch of bastard children would have done. So I think it is far more likely that they had a secret marriage, probably after they realised that she was pregnant. It was kept a secret for all the reasons mentioned above, anti-wealth racism and his low birth. Now, all the dates are uncertain due to the lack of evidence, so please don't all write in and tell me that such and such a book disagrees with me. But, that said, in their around six years of marriage, they produced probably three children. Edmund, Jasper, and a daughter who died in infancy. Edmund, their eldest, was born in around 1431, which is why I placed the date of their marriage in around that date. There may have been other children, possibly as many as two extras in their short marriage, but it's hard to be short, so I've decided to just stick with the three. Shortly after the birth of Edmund, Catherine, in an attempt no doubt to raise the profile of her new hush-hush husband, arranged for Owen's pedigree, i.e. his noble status and also his Englishness, to be affirmed by Parliament, and this was duly done. Owen was essentially given the medieval equivalent of a green card, and naturalised as an Englishman, giving him a ton of new and exciting benefits, the most important being that he was now permitted to own English property, something not open to the Welsh. This did not mean, though, that the establishment liked Owen. One chronicler described him as being, quote, a man of neither birth nor livelihood. And, as we will see, this acceptance of him would not long outlast the life of Queen Catherine. As an aside, the reason given for her relative lack of power, both during the reign of her husband and son, aside from a lack of desire to have it, was possibly linguistic isolation. Up until the reigns of the Edwards in the mid-14th century, French, not English, was the language of the nobility. It is indeed a matter of hot debate amongst historians as to whether the Norman and Angevin era kings and high nobility could even speak English. They were the descendants of a conquering French duchy and saw no need to debase themselves with the peasant language of their new subjects. By now, though, only a century or so on, everything had changed. Thanks to a great number of factors, the Hundred Years' War being a major one, English was now the principal language of the kings and nobles of England, not the language of the hated French, And so, it is thought that Catherine may have been extremely isolated, especially after the death of her husband, due to her inability to effectively communicate in English. Now, personally, I think this is rather overblown. I think that if Catherine had had truly been able... I think that if Catherine had truly been unable to speak English, even after a good many years spent in the country, she would have returned to France after a while, especially after being sidelined in the raising of her son, but she did not. I bring this up now because I think the relationship between herself and Owen is the final nail in this coffin. For a start, it is unlikely that they would have conversed in any language other than English, and it is unlikely that Owen spoke French, and inconceivable that Catherine would have spoken Welsh. There is also an account of Catherine meeting two of Owen's cousins, where she is said to have spoken to them in, quote, diverse languages in an attempt to find a common tongue. This suggests that she was a skilled linguist, and surely, therefore, she would have been proficient in English. The difference in stature between the couple was evident in how they spent their married life. They seem to have resided in the Queen's estates in Hertfordshire, and she did not take any of his names or titles. Her children would keep their father's name, however, and of course, most crucially, have her lineage to fall back on as a boost to their prestige and link to France. Aside from giving birth to children, there is sadly scant evidence of anything else that Catherine was up to in these years. It seems that the relations between her and her young son Henry were warm, though, as therefore they must have been with his guardians, for those guardians could have easily shut her out had they wished it. In 1437, Henry sent his mother a New Year's gift of, quote, a tablet of gold with a crucifix garnished with a sapphire, worth the princely sum of £40. Pounds. Little evidence exists of her religious activities, but it seems that she may well have fulfilled the piety expectations of a queen, and she seems to have been held in some affection by the English church, something that they would not have done if she did not have a good reputation for piety. In her final years, there is speculation that she may well have suffered from mental deterioration along the same lines that had affected her father and would later cripple the kingship of her son. Now, it is possible that this is just people seeking an easy explanation for some of the great changes in her life in later years, as she retired to Bermondsey Abbey and her children were removed to a surrogate family, but it is clear that something drastic happened in the final months of her life. There is also a suggestion that there was trouble in Paradise, and that she and Owen became estranged in this period, again with the evidence of the fact that their children were removed to the care of the sister of the Earl of Suffolk and not placed into the care of their father. I'd love to talk more about this, but there just is not the evidence to, so I'm forced to just leave that out there. On the 3rd of January, 1437, Catherine died at Bermondsey Abbey at the age of just 35, yet another child of Charles VI and Isabella of Bavaria to die relatively young. She was laid to rest in Westminster Abbey, just as her husband Henry V had been, though her remarriage seems to have prevented them from being buried together, as they were placed in different chapels. I say laid to rest but in actual fact her body would have a strange journey over the next few years. The chapel in the abbey where she was buried was reconstructed during the reign of her grandson Henry VII, and she was rather unceremoniously placed in an open coffin for nearly 200 years. Famously, Samuel Pepys in the 17th century would go to see the long-dead queen, and noted it in his famous diary, quote, On Shrove Tuesday, 1669, I to the abbey went, and by favour did see the body of Queen Catherine of Valois, and had the upper part of the body in my hands, and I did kiss her mouth. Reflecting upon it, I did kiss a queen, and this my birthday, and I 36 years old, and I did kiss a queen. I think I speak for all of us when I say, Ew, gross. It would not be until the reign of Queen Victoria that Catherine was properly reinterred at the abbey, this time in Chantry Chapel, which had been constructed by her husband, Henry V. The inscription reads, quote, Under this slab, once the altar of this chapel, for long cast down and broken up by fire, rest at last after various vicissitudes finally deposited here by Commander Queen Victoria, the bones of Catherine de Valois, daughter of Charles VI, King of France, wife of Henry V, mother of Henry VI, grandmother of Henry Seventh, born 1400, crowned 1421, died 1438. Before summing up the life of Catherine, I'm going to quickly talk about what happened to Owen Tudor after the death of his wife. It seemed that the limited expectance that this upstart Welshman had gained from marrying the Dowager Queen would only last while she was alive to protect him. With Henry VI still childless and wifeless, the position of heir was held by the Lord Protector, Humphrey, Duke of Gloucester, and he was not in the business of letting rival potential heirs gain power. Pretty much as soon as Catherine was dead, Owen fled to Westminster Abbey where he sought sanctuary, but was eventually arrested and sent to Newgate Prison with all his possessions confiscated. His crime? The breaking of the law forbidding the remarriage of Dowager Queens. Being a man of action, Owen escaped the jail, but was quickly then recaptured and sent to Windsor Castle where the Lord Protector would have loved to have seen him rot, but he was saved by his stepson King Henry, who pardoned him in 1439 and restored to him his lands and possessions. As a thanks, Owen became a loyal supporter of King Henry and the Lancastrian cause in the opening rounds of the Wars of the Roses. Sadly, his fate, like most Lancastrian nobles, was to die at the hands of the Yorkists, as he would die leading the charge at the Battle of Mortimer's Cross in 1461. His sons, Edmund and Jasper, were welcomed into court as half-brothers of the king and granted the earldoms of Richmond and Pembroke, respectively. They were educated at court, and the King took a great personal interest in their upbringing. Edmund was knighted in 1449 and officially recognised by Parliament as a half-brother of the King in 1453. Being the caring sort of man that he was, Henry then granted him the wardship of the ten-year-old Margaret Beaufort, the daughter of Catherine's former lover, heiress of the Duchy of Somerset, and descendant of John of Gaunt, whom Edmund then married after she came of age. Edmund would eventually die of the plague in 1456 but the following year his wife would give birth to their son, and Catherine's grandson, Henry Tudor. Yep, that Henry Tudor. So, what are we to make of Catherine of France? Well, in the last show, I called her a trophy queen, and while it is a bit of an exaggeration to deem her a mere pawn in the affairs of state, it is not a total exaggeration. Her greatest influence on her time, as well as the future of England and France, Was by far in whom she married and whom she gave birth to. With the exception of the Yorkist kings, Edward IV, V, and Richard III, every king and queen of England, and later Great Britain and United Kingdom, is a direct descendant of Catherine. Her hand in marriage cemented an alliance that could have seen the union of the crowns of England and France, creating a European empire that would have totally upset the balance of power on the continent and forever changed the course of Western history. Of course, that didn't really happen thanks to the premature death of her husband, the obstinance and, frankly, lark of the Dauphin Charles, and the inept rulership of Henry VI, amongst other things, but Catherine had the potential to have been the matriarch of a giant European dynasty. As it turned out, she was the matriarch of a dynasty, but not the one represented at the negotiations at Troyes. We know frustratingly little about Catherine, as the sources are all massively distracted by the wars in France and by high politics in England, and Catherine played no part in either of these things. She was a young and inexperienced woman when she became queen, and had neither the time nor support during her very brief reign to do really much at all other than give birth to the new king. The power she had was all potential power, as any son of hers would have the potential to wield considerable power as he would be a grandson of a French king and half-brother of the English king. This meant that she was banned from marrying a respectable man, and most queens at that point would have settled down for a life of provincial obscurity and celibacy. As I said before, it is very rare for English queens to remarry within the kingdom, but that Catherine did in the face of considerable opposition. Her love for the minorist and minor nobles Owen Tudor cost her the guardianship of her son, but it did allow her to have the kind of married life that she had craved with Henry V, share companionship and children to raise, and that at least history seemed to have owed her after dealing her seemingly great cards as the daughter of a French king, only for her to be born into a kingdom that was tearing itself apart to a man who was not fully in possession of all his marbles. To sum up, Catherine is the greatest example of the truism that the most influential question that one should ask about a medieval queen is this, who did she give birth to, and to whom? Next time, we are going to look at the life of one of England's most infamous queens, Margaret of Anjou. The woman at the heart of no less than four Shakespeare plays, she was destined to be at the heart of English politics for decades and was possibly the most powerful woman in all of English medieval history.
0: Gravis, or Lambert-Eden syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day.